to start a new year and to start a new decade, uh, we're going to begin a process as a church uh, called Revision. And over the next several months, uh, we want to encourage you to pray for your church, perhaps like you never have before. And we also want to encourage you to look at your church, uh, perhaps like you never have before. And to help us with this uh, revision mentality, uh, we're going to spend some time, as I told you last week, we're going to spend some time um, looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, sometime around A.D. 60 or 61. Again, many of you understand that Paul, his ministry, after having a dramatic conversion experience from opposing the movement of Jesus Christ to embracing and eventually becoming a martyr on behalf of that movement, he traveled around the region uh, starting churches. And as he moved from one place to another, um, he would then send letters back to those he left behind. There was one region called Ephesus, and the book or the letter that Paul wrote to them that we have as part of our New Testament is called the book or the letter to Ephesians. And so Ephesus, a geographic region, Ephesians, the letter Paul sent to those group of Christ followers. In chapters 1 through 3 of the letter to Ephesians, Paul spends a great deal of time emphasizing the greatness of God's redemptive process. And then in the second half, the left, chapters 4 through 6, he unpacks the application for the fulfillment of those redemptive purposes of God. Some of you who understand, have experience with the New Testament, will, will know that sometimes Paul, when he wrote a letter to a group of Christ followers, he was writing to address specific problems or concerns. In other words, it was a, hey, you're messing up, or hey, get your act together, or get things back on track. But the letter to the Ephesians was more about offering words of encouragement and instruction. I would kind of put it as a good job, keep it up type of letter. And having received back in the day when people wrote letters, when people wrote notes, I got some notes that said, hey, get your act together. I also got some notes, now they would be emails, that say, good job, keep it up. So that's kind of the a brief thumbnail sketch or backdrop for the letter to the Ephesians that we're going to use as a guide as I teach on this revision concept. Since all good preachers like messages with three points and alliteration, uh, I want you to consider with me briefly three thoughts from Ephesians chapter 1. And, and the first of those is Paul begins by talking about the church's people. And we're just going to look at Ephesians 1, 1 and 2 right now. Paul says, Paul, introducing, reminding them who the letter's from, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, saying, hey, this is my the foundation for my authority in speaking to you. You know, this is who I am. You understand that I'm doing this on behalf of Jesus Christ, 
and I'm doing it by God's will. In other words, this isn't my idea. This is God's idea. Again, that hopefully would inspire them to sit up and pay attention. He follows that up with saying, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in in Christ Jesus. Then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church's people, just briefly, just to what we just read there, understand he starts out by celebrating who they are. He said, not just a bunch of folks who go to church together, he refers to them as God's holy people. What a great title. I mean, I suspect I'm not the only one here who would be thrilled to have someone send you a note, a text, email, whatever, that says, hey, you're part of God's holy people. Oh, cool. I feel, I feel good about that. Then he goes on and he, and he refers to them as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So here's these people. They get a letter from someone whom they respect his spiritual authority and perspective, who shaped their early faith in Jesus Christ. And he calls them God's holy people. And he celebrates that they are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, remember, he said that they are marked by grace and peace. Maybe I'm, well, I know I'm a little different than some folks, but God's holy people, faithful followers of Jesus Christ, marked by grace and peace. For me, that sounds like a group of people I would like to hang with. I would like to worship with those folks. I would like to grow in my faith with those folks. I would like to serve alongside of those folks. God's holy people. Faithful followers of Christ Jesus, marked by grace and peace. That's, that's the church's people that Paul's talking to. Then he unpacks the church's praise. And this is a little bit longer passage, but just follow along as we go through it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What a great thought. Blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined for us adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So in other words, God has a plan to draw these people at Ephesus closer and closer to him because it is God's pleasure and will that they walk in that closeness and that love to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So again, this is all stuff God's given, adopted into his family, just all of this positive energy Paul's speaking to. In him we have redemption through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Anybody else getting a sense that there was some real positive energy between Paul and these people at Ephesus, that he was excited about what was taking place in their midst. 
He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen. Again, that idea of being chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth. So in other words, Paul's talking about all this great stuff God has for his chosen people. And then he says, and you're part of that group. You're part of that chosen group of people. When you heard the message of truth, you responded. The gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul unpacks all of this positive connection they have, the fact that God chose them, and then he makes it personal. And he says, you know what? Ever since we first met, I have just been overwhelmed, and I can't stop myself from praising God for what he has done and what he continues to do in your life. And I think, wow, what an amazing opportunity to be a part of a group like that. I can't help but imagine how they must have felt when they got that letter. And somebody stood up in the group and said, Hey, y'all, I, I, I got a message from Paul. You're going you're gonna to want to take notes on this. And, and they just unpacked that. And for me, I, I, I don't think I'm different in this category. When people start heaping praise on me, I'm a, yeah, bring it. Just just keep it coming. I'll take some more of that. And, and they're reading this letter. And, and I have to believe they're feeling pretty good about things. And when he wraps it up by just celebrating the depth of their faith and the love that they have, I, I got to believe if they had a potluck after church that day, it was a fun time. Then Paul just touches a little bit on the church's power. (laughs) Toward the end of chapter 1, he puts it this way. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Speaking of Jesus, everything. He's in authority over everything. The church. I stopped here. Let me back up here. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I trust you've noticed how many times Paul talks about everything and fullness, every way. Within the church, we are under Christ's authority. Within the church at Ephesus, they were under Christ's authority. He was the head and the church was his body. It is only in connection 
and submission to him that the church could be all it was intended to be. And at that point in time, when this letter came to the church at Ephesus, Paul's saying, that's where you're at. You're right smack dab in the middle of the plan. And like I said before, to get a letter like that, you know, I I just fantasize about uh, our regional superintendent sending a letter to Caring Community Church and just over-the-top praise saying, you know what, you guys are smack dab in the middle of God's will for your church at this time. Whoa! I'm not bashing denominational leadership. We've gotten some encouragement, but I don't think I've ever gotten anything quite like that. Maybe I'll have to delete that before we put that online. But anyway. As Paul... Again, just the reminder that it that it all flows from his authority. And the more we are in alignment and in connection to that authority the greater the likelihood we will be where he wants us to be. Before I move on, I hope you noticed in your program or on the sign or at the start of my message, this is a tale of two letters. And and I've been unpacking the first of those two letters. But before I move to the second letter, at the end of the first letter, Paul says this, Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. What a, what a great way. Grace to you because you love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Friends, I, I like to think that I love Jesus. I like to think that we as a church love Jesus. But I wonder... Is it an undying love? What what a vision Paul casts for them. How high he sets the bar. I again, I know I'm projecting my pastoral emotions onto this letter. But I get a sense that even though he served there and moved on, I get a sense that Paul genuinely cared for these people. And he genuinely respected their faith journey. And to me, this letter just oozes that kind of sentiment. Which brings us to letter number two. I know I do this often, but use your imagination with me. Fast forward 35 years. From A.D. 60-61 to A.D. 95 still in the church at Ephesus. There are some who were in the church when Paul's letter arrived. They were there that day that they read it and said, thank you, Jesus. We're in the sweet spot. But they're now gone. The only Ephesus, or the only Ephesian church they ever knew was the one Paul wrote about in A.D. 60-61. In A.D. 95, there are also some in the church at Ephesus who never experienced what it was like back in the day. 
they, they weren't there when Paul wrote. Maybe they heard about the letter. Maybe when people sit around the campfire and tell stories about the good old days, that they hear references to, oh, man, remember when we got that letter from Paul? Wasn't that just awesome? That was just such a special time. But they weren't there. All they know is what they were told. And then because of a 35-year span, I think it's reasonable to project that there were some who were part of the church when Paul wrote and who were also part of the church when the next letter came. So these folks know the tale of two letters. The second letter was not written by Paul, but rather it was dictated by Jesus Christ. The church's problem. 35 years. Friends, some of you know enough about our history to understand when you start talking about a 35 to 40 year span, it kind of gets inside my head. Because that's kind of us. Okay? The church's problem. In Revelation chapter 2, John is receiving a vision dictated him, dictated to him by Jesus. And it says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Okay, remember, the church at Ephesus, the one that got the first letter. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Oh, yeah. Somebody noticed. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Oh, yeah. Letter number two sounds pretty good. I know your deeds. I know what you've done. I know you work hard. I know you stuck with it. I know you can't tolerate evil. I know that you resist those who embrace it. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yeah. Sticking with it. Yet. Yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Oh my. It just got painfully real. Because remember in the first letter how much it talked about their love? And now he says, you know what? You're still getting a lot right. But you're missing some things. I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Same church, 
35 years. Two very different letters. Two questions from the second letter. At least, I, I have two. What was the cause? How did they get from letter one to letter two? Why was the love gone? How did that happen? What what was it that took place? Was there a catastrophic moment? Did, Did hurt feelings take over and factions divided? Or did it just bit by bit by bit the flame dwindled a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more? Do you wonder what it would have been like for the AD 95 crowd to get that second letter and start out thinking, yeah, yeah, we still got it. Yet, I hold this one thing against you. What's the cure? When letter number two comes, how do we fix it? How can we be restored, renewed, or revived? In that letter, I I busted through it pretty quickly. But but there is a a hint, uh, or maybe even a formula, for the path to revitalization. And I would emphasize that it's a path. It's not an event. It's not a moment. It is a process. It is a journey. And it's hidden there in verse two or verse 5 of Revelation 2. The first step is to remember. Consider how far you have fallen. Look back and say, Oh yeah, you know what? It, it's different it happened slow enough that I didn't realize it was different but now that I look back it's like yeah it is a little different maybe it's a lot different then it's repent that's all Jesus says is repent Stop doing the things that aren't helping. Stop doing the things that are crushing a spirit of love. Because that's what the problem is. Just stop. And then return. Two fives after it says repent, says do the things you did at first. So, why the call to revision? Later in chapter 5 of the letter to Ephesians, Paul makes it crystal clear that Jesus Christ 
loves his church and he wants her to thrive in all of her potential beauty. But in order to do that, it's important to realize that everything in this world changes. And therefore, from time to time, every church needs to be intentional about revitalization. We're not challenging us to think about revision because we're in free fall, because we're obviously not. But we also understand that everything changes. And to remain effective, every church, every local church, must periodically take time to ask, where have we been? Where are we? Where are we headed? Every church needs to ask, what's working and what's not? Every church needs to ask, what needs to change? And what must remain the same? As some of you old-timers will remember back in the day, every church needs to ask, where is God moving and how can we join him? where he's moving. Some of you, again, I was going to say old-timers, but some of you with rich history have undoubtedly heard me say before, and some of you have had experience in other churches, we have a great potential to say, God, here's where we want to go. Won't you join us there? We have a great plan. Y'all come with us. When in reality... It always has to be the other way around. God, where are you going? And how can we join you in that? As someone who has spent most of his adult life making plans for ministry, sometimes that process gets backwards. Because I like to think I come up with good plans. I like to think our leadership team over the history of our church has come up with good plans. But just because we come up with good plans doesn't mean they're God's plans. And I can tell you firsthand, sometimes it's painful when he has to teach me that lesson. So that's why revision. Let your mind wander for just a moment about how different things are in the world around us than they were in 1981 when Caring Community started. By show of hands, how many of you weren't even born in 1981? Okay. Friends, I feel really old. But now I... (laughs) But if we just pause for just a moment... I, I, there was an article, I actually saved it in my email. There's an article this, this past week, you know, end of the year, end of the decade, and it was, uh, 20 things that didn't exist in 2010. And I'm thinking, 2010 was yesterday. How could anything not exist then that's here today? But if you think about it, every decade has seen dramatic changes. The 90s, 
2000 when the world didn't end with Y2K. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about there. 2010. Every decade has seen dramatic societal shifts, cultural shifts, economic shifts, demographic shifts. Every decade since 1981 has seen significant changes in the ministry of caring community, which I was tempted to unpack today, but it got to be a really long list. But I will unpack more in the weeks to come. But most importantly for today, is there is every indication that the next decade will also see significant changes in the world around us and therefore should see significant changes within this local church. When we talk about revision, it is about all of us as a congregation being intentional about investing some focused attention and prayer to get a glimpse of the vision that God has for the next season in the life of caring community. And then collectively leaning into the process of making that vision a reality. So that in... I can't even believe I'm going to say this. In 2030, someone could stand here and look back and say, Oh, remember back in 2020? My, how far God has brought us. How we have seen the privilege of partnering with Him in leading a decade of change that has seen lives transformed for today and for all of eternity. That is why the call to revision. I wish I could tell you what that looks like, but that's why it's necessary, because I can't, and no one else can. So on that note, I'm going to come back up in just a moment and talk a bit more, but right now I invite you to close your eyes and pray with me. Father, as I, as I come before you, uh, my compulsive need to understand stuff leaves me wishing I had access to letter number three to see what came next for those people at Ephesus. They still had so much going in A.D. 95. Did that letter spark a revival and a restoration of that love? If you will, Father, a revitalization. A restoration. Did they passionately return and cultivate and pass that first love on to a new generation? And as I say that, Father, I pray for those of us gathering, gathered here. And Father, I'm humbled by the hands that went up. I said, I wasn't even born 
when God started this work. But I'm here now. And Father, I pray that every person, regardless of their tenure, how long they've been a part of this ministry, I pray that every person during this season, the season that they are connected with this specific body of believers, whether it's a long season or a short season, for the season that they are connected, I pray that you would help all of us to lean in to a process of revisioning. Striving diligently to be open to the prompting of your spirit and in a spirit of love to catch a glimpse of what you want, where you're at, and how we can join you. So, Father, we do commit the process to you, but more importantly, we commit this ministry to you. And as a part of this church, we commit ourselves to you. Father, let it be true of us that where you lead, we will follow. And that together, with the power of your Holy Spirit, we will sense that the love for you is as vital in this ministry today as it has ever been. And that that love moving forward will only grow deeper. We ask these things in the name of your son and the author of that letter number two. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Michelle. And some of you have heard me say this before. Some of you have heard others say it. Um, Within the local Christian church, um, especially within our circle of uh, belief system, uh, we believe that there are spiritual forces for good and spiritual forces for evil. And it has been my experience as the experience of the Christian church over the centuries that when forces for good seek to become increasingly proactive, um, there is spiritual opposition. And because our goal is to be where God wants us to be as individuals and as a church, um, it is very reasonable to expect that as we grapple with the revision process, there will be spiritual opposition. The beauty of it is God has given us the resources we need to fight that fight and to be victorious in that fight. And one of the most important resources we have is focused prayer. And so, as I said earlier in my message, we implore all of you, regardless of your level of connection to this specific body of believers, uh, we encourage you to be praying for all things caring community in the weeks, days, and days, weeks, months, and year to come. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but we encourage you to pray for one another because Scripture teaches us where two or three are gathered, He is there in their midst. Uh, we encourage you to pray with one another in formal capacities and informal capacities. We encourage you to pray for those who lead. We encourage you to pray for those who serve. And we encourage you to pray for God to reveal his plans. Because of that emphasis and the importance of prayer in a process of revisioning, one of the things that we will 
Uh, one of the things that we have been encouraged, we'll be working with uh, an individual from our denomination who has guided other churches through this process. And one of the things they encourage you to do is have someone other than the pastor, because sometimes pastors get distracted, uh, someone who embraces the mission of helping us focus our prayers during the season, simply calling profound title a prayer coordinator. All right. And um, so each week during our service, we will be giving you some specific direction with regard to prayer. We will be talking about a variety of different things in the weeks to come, eventually even having a 24-hour prayer vigil where people are encouraged to sign up, come, spend some very specific focus time here on site uh, praying for uh, our ministry. But Lori Hollenbaugh has graciously agreed to step just slightly outside of her comfort level and and take on the role as prayer coordinator for us. And so, Lori, if you want to just come up here, I'm going to have you come over to the to the kneeler here, if you would, please. Um, Lori asked if she could talk to you today, and I told her she couldn't. Um, <laughs> joking there. Uh, but um, I would like us to uh, pray over Lori. If you would kneel uh, there. Mike, would you come up too? All right. I know you're looking forward to this, all right? I didn't even warn him about this. And I would like the members of our local board of administration who are here to join me, and the rest of you, as I pray over Lori, um, if you would just put your hand up in this direction, indicating your agreement with these prayers. We're just going to ask God to really speak to Lori so that she may in turn speak to our hearts with regard to prayer over the next several months. So please pray with me. Father, throughout the history of your church, uh, there have been no seasons where you called your people to come together to lay hands on someone and pray for you to work in their lives in a specific way. And throughout the history of your church, there are innumerable examples where you responded to those prayers and you had just the right person in just the right place for just the right moment. And Father, we thank you for Lori's willingness to step up and take on this role. And we pray that you would speak to her and that you would speak to us through her and that you would motivate all of us to respond to a call to pray in new ways, in more consistent ways, in deeper levels of connection in the weeks to come. And we pray that we will all look back and realize how important and how significant this moment is and her willingness to step into this capacity. Father, we also know, just as I said, any time someone steps up and accepts additional responsibility, uh, Lori has just embraced putting a target on her. And we pray, Father, we rebuke in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We rebuke the spiritual opposition that may rise up to interfere with anything that she's trying to accomplish. And, Father, we pray that you would protect her. We pray that you would protect Mike as he is her supporter and helpmate. And we pray that both of them, again, will look back one day and realize what a significant step forward in their journey and what a significant role they played in the future and the history of this church. Uh, we thank you and we ask these things again in the power of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. 
Thank you very much. And on that note, I will invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in our recessional.